Well, if you have your Bible, would you open up to Psalm 134? And uh, I'd hope that if you're at home, you have your Bible. So please grab it, and uh, we will we'll jump into this psalm. As Joe mentioned earlier, we are jumping into the end of the Psalms of Ascent. And maybe if you're like me, this is a big day, because next week we get to meet together in person again. So in, in one sense, I, I think that this psalm is going to resonate with us um, as the Israelites come to the end of their journey and, uh, and we read their psalm. Let me see if I can find it here. I'm talking too much. I don't know about you, but I am not good at doing two things at once. There we go. Let me read the psalm, and then we will uh, jump into it. Psalm 134, starting at verse 1. Come bless the Lord, all you servants of the Lord who stand by night in the house of the Lord. Lift up your hands to the holy place and bless the Lord. May the Lord bless you from Zion, He who made heaven and earth. So right off the bat, we notice that the word bless is repeated three times in this psalm. So clearly, this is a psalm of blessing. Okay, that's very obvious, but there are some questions in this psalm. It it is a mysterious little psalm, three verses. You don't have a lot to work with. Um, And yet, what you'll see, and and I hope to show you, is that there actually is a lot to work with. But we have some questions we need to answer if we're going to understand this psalm, and definitely if we're going to understand how it applies to us today. So this is a psalm of blessing, like I said, but again, there's mystery, and so there's some questions. First question I think we need to answer is, who is singing this psalm? All right, the wording is interesting, Um, and and I don't mean like who wrote it. Okay, we're not exactly sure who wrote it, Um, but the question is, who is supposed to be singing it? And um, who is it meant for, right? So like, who would it be sung to? Okay. Uh, Another question, who are these servants of the Lord in verse number one? What are they doing at nighttime? All right, you notice that there's this, this discussion of nighttime, and then who is being blessed. In verse number three, there's this blessing, and we're asked, or we, we should ask the question, who is that directed toward? Who is being blessed? So let's start with our first question. Who is singing this? Well, just like all the other songs of ascent, right, this is part of a collection, and I think just like every other song, it is being sung by the people, right? If you remember, they're ascending up to Jerusalem for the feasts, and um, these are songs that they would sing to lift their spirits during the journey, to, to point them to what is to come. All right, so it is possible that this is a song that they would sing as they were heading up the mountain to Jerusalem. However, I, I think there are some clues in the psalm that probably indicate that this was actually a psalm that would have been used during the week of the celebration, during the week of the feast in Jerusalem. I don't think this psalm was necessarily intended for the ride up. And, and I think maybe it was probably sung on the way up, but I don't think that was its main function based on the, uh, the psalm. And, and the main reason we think that is if you look at verse number 3, there is a benediction. right? There is a blessing for the people in verse number 3. And there was one role in the, in the nation of Israel, the one, one group of people responsible for those kinds of blessings, and that would be the priests. So verse number 3 being a blessing, okay, um, it, it seems like that would be a job of the priest to say. So here is the general flow I think we see in the psalm. Verses 1 and 2. It seems like the people are singing verses 1 and 2. And then in response, the priests are responding in verse number 3 with a blessing. That, that seems to be the structure of this psalm. And I think this is a helpful analogy for us. W- what time of year do we tend to sing the same songs over and over again? 
each year. It's Christmas, right? So every year at Christmas, we sing the same songs over and over again. I think there's some similarity there. There's definitely some differences, but um, some similarities there. And um, man, I don't mean that in a bad way, by the way, that we sing them year after year. I find that as we sing our Christmas songs year after year, and and as I get older and I start to think about the words more, I love them more, right? Um, Especially, oh man, so Noel is like the first Noel. That's like one of my favorite Christmas songs, and here's why. When you get to the chorus, you know it's Noel, Noel, Noel. And then there's that, that last time, that fourth time, someone always sings like that harmony. Like Steve Patton sitting right there. I bet he's one of those guys that could sing that harmony. I'm not even going to try because here's what happens. Every year at the Christmas Eve service or in Christmas service, I hear it. And like after two choruses of that, I get like so excited. I try to do it and it sounds like some combination of like a pterodactyl mixed with a bat, okay? Um, but, but my point is not the first Noel. My point is a different song. Okay, that's just one that I love. I had to talk about it. Um, my point is Silent Night. Now, Silent Night is a song that we could sing on the way to church on Christmas Eve, right? It's a song that we hear on the radio um, throughout the week of Christmas and, and the weeks leading up to it. And, and it's a song that it, it doesn't just show up in the Christmas Eve service, but it's got its place throughout the Christmas season. But... When I say Silent Night, there is one moment that every Christian thinks of, at least in North America, right? I don't know what they do in other countries, but in North America, there's one thing we think of, and that is the Christmas Eve service. That's that moment at the end of the Christmas Eve service when we light our candles and we sing Silent Night. And and yes, that's a song that maybe we sing in the rest of the, the, the Christmas season, but it's got a special place. And I think this psalm is similar. Sure, the people might have sung it on their way up, Um, but I think that probably it had a special place at the end of a long day of feasting, at the end of a long day of worshiping God, at at the end of an amazing day, the day might have ended um, with this little psalm. And and, and most scholars would tend to agree with that, as I've seen this week in my studying in the last week. So again, here's the structure I think we see. Verses 1 and 2, the people sing to the priests, and in verse 3, the priests respond back with a blessing for the people. Um, And in verses 1 and 3, we're going to take a look at this now, we seem to see that the people spur on, encourage the priests as the day comes to an end. So so look again at at verse number 1. Come, bless the Lord, all you servants of the Lord who stand by night in the house of the Lord. So, This sounds a lot like the description of the priests, right? They're called servants of the Lord. Now, we have to be careful when we're coming to Scripture and we're trying to make declarations like this because certainly that phrase, servant of the Lord, is used of people who are not priests in the Scriptures. It's not just for them. But there are some other clues here that that say that it probably is the priests that we're talking about. Okay, I want you to notice, what are they doing? Well, in verse number 1, they stand by night in the house of the Lord. That's a big hint. Now, we do see in Scriptures, there are moments where people who are not priests are in the temple at night. Like, you can go to Luke chapter 2, verse 37, and you'll find a prophetess named Anna who is there at night, okay, and she's worshiping. Like, like that's fine. That's possible, okay? But by and large, if, if you look through your Old Testament, it is clear that the, the people who are supposed to be there every night are the priests and the Levites. They had responsibilities to keep the temple running through the night. And if you want some passages to check out, you can go to 1 Chronicles 9.33. 
or 1 Chronicles 23, 28. I'm not going to go there. You can do that later. This is recorded, so if you want to pause and go back and find those, that's fine. All right, do that later. But if you go there, you're going to see that it's clear that the temples had, the temple, the priests had some sort of function at night in the temple. They were supposed to be there, um, and the worship of the Lord was not supposed to be restricted to the day. So as the day comes to the close, the, the people urge the priests to bless the Lord through the night. And, and there's a strength here. The first word in the ESV says, come, right? Come. And, and, and that's kind of weird. Like in English, we don't do that a lot. Um, other translations say, behold, or now, or, or look. It's kind of like they're saying like, hey. Like, and, and if that doesn't communicate the strength of the call for like this night shift crew in the temple, um, look at verse number two. Lift up your hands to the holy place and bless the Lord. Now, <laughs> there are some people at East Brandywine Baptist Church who lift their hands during praise and worship time, and, and that's awesome. Go for it. Right? There, there's nothing wrong with it. Um, in fact, I think from passages like this, you have an argument for what you do. But I would say, by and large, at East Brandywine Baptist Church, we are a frozen chosen. Okay, um, we, we don't move much. We don't emote much, and that's okay. I'm, I'm not making fun of us. I am a little bit, but I'm not, okay? Um, and, and by the way, I was raised in a Presbyterian church, and they claimed to be the frozen chosen, and then I came to a Baptist church, and they claimed, so I'm not sure who the frozen chosen are. I don't know, maybe it's everybody. Uh, maybe it's both. I don't know, but here's what Calvin says about these verses, okay? John Calvin said this, For why do men lift their hands when they pray? Is it not that their hearts be raised at the same time to God? The hands in this passage are a symbol of the heart. And so that's the emphasis here. The people are spurring on the priests. They're spurring on the Levites. They're about to go home and go to bed, but the priests and the Levites on the night shift are coming in and they're like, keep it going. If you remember in our study in Malachi, we learned that it is completely possible to worship and move through the motions with a heart that is far from God. In other words... Heartless worship is a real possible thing. And it's offensive to God. Let's put ourselves in their shoes. If you were a priest, what would you struggle with the most? Probably this shift. Right? Like, everybody's been partying all day, and, and maybe you were at home sleeping to prepare for this. Like, nurses, you can relate. You sleep during the day, and you sort of miss some of the day, and then you've got to go work at night. Okay? I've never worked the night shift. Um... So I don't know exactly what it's like, but, but if I was a priest, I know when I got the job, like when I would be picked for the nighttime, I'd be like, oh man, not to, I don't want to do it tonight. Can I, can I, let's trade. Anybody want to trade? Right? Um, so you can imagine as they head in, they could, need, they could use some encouragement. So the night crew in the temple, though, was to worship with the same vigor as the day crew. And, and here we find a, a lesson. And, and let, me, let, me, let me sort of break this out down for you. You might be saying, well, we don't have priests, so what does this have to do with us? Well, you do have pastors. And you have elders. And you have leaders in this church who, when you leave on Sunday morning or when you click end stream on Sunday morning, the work is not done. We, we are working through the week, into the nights often. And just as the Israelites encouraged the priests go and keep wholeheartedly working through the night, so too we should encourage our leaders to do the same thing. It's easy to forget when we leave on Sunday that like the work is still going on at East Brandywine. 
And I, I can tell you as one of your leaders, we need that encouragement. We need reminders of the importance of the work we are doing in, in leading this people to praise the Lord. And I feel lucky to say that I'm part of a church that does this, by the way. Um, I, I, please don't think I'm, I'm up here saying, you don't do this, so do this. Our church does this. Our church, I mean, thank you if you're one of the people that have sent me an email or a note. I know the other pastors appreciate it as well. You, you love your leaders and your pastors, and I thank you for that. And those, there are times, I have a drawer in my desk, there are times when I pull those notes out, and they resonate. And, and they, when I'm down, man, they point me right back to what I'm doing. Why am I here? And I know the same goes for our other pastors. And, and by the way, don't think this is just about the pastors and the elders. I think that our teachers need this same encouragement and reminder. I think that our kids' teachers and EBBC kids need this same reminders. When you pick up your kid from EBBC kids, man, spur on that Sunday school teacher. Encourage them. They're working with your children and they need to be reminded of the, the fruit of their labors. And not just that, but what they're doing has purpose. So, where am I going with this? Okay. Well, there's another level to it, right? This isn't just about spurring on our leaders because in a different sense, um, the New Testament makes it pretty clear that um, we are priests. And, and I'll get there in a second, okay? Um, if you go to 1 Peter with me, let's just do this now. I, I was going to do it in a second, but we're going to go do it now. Let's go to 1 Peter. This was the call to worship. Um, so 1 Peter chapter number 2, I'm going to look at, I'm going to focus just on verse number 5. So if you look at 1 Peter 2, verse number 5, it says, You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. If you look at that passage, and maybe even look at verses 9 and 10, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own work, possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into marvelous light. Once you were not a people... But now you are God's people. Once you had not mercy, but now you have received mercy. Notice, Peter describes the church as a royal priesthood. And at this point, you might be like, but no, no, this is important. Please pay attention to this. Peter describes us as a royal priesthood. And our responsibility is to offer spiritual sacrifices. We get to declare the greatness of God. It is a privilege, it is an honor, and as a royal priesthood, we have the responsibility of offering spiritual sacrifices to God. Now, I want to make some clarifications about this, because you might be sitting at home saying, I didn't sign up to be a priest, okay? I want to just clarify something here. First of all, as a royal priesthood, none of us have closer access to God than any other, because our access to God is completely and totally through Jesus Christ, our high priest, our mediator for us before the Father. That's a, we have to start there. So when I say that we as a church are holy, a royal priesthood, I'm not declaring that you have some sort of access to God and other people need to come to you for it. No, the only access to God is through Jesus. But let's think about what this means. Priests were responsible for offering sacrifices. That was what this week of feasting was all about. There would be sacrifices offered in we have that responsibility too. Now, before you go out and buy a roll of plastic and start slaughtering bulls and rams on your, on your living room carpet, okay, 
Turn to Hebrews 13. I want to unpack what it means to offer a spiritual sacrifice today. Okay? I'm not calling us to go slaughter animals. Go, go to Hebrews verse 13, or chapter 13. We're going to be at verse 15 and 16. Here's what the author of Hebrews writes. Through Him, so through Jesus, right? not in our own strength, not to earn our favor before God, but through Christ, then let us continually to offer up a sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of the lips that acknowledge His name. Do not neglect to do good and share what you have for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. We see two types of sacrifices here that a royal, as a royal priesthood we are to be offering. First, we are to praise Him with our lips. Notice how often the author says we are to praise Him with our lips. Continually. He's talking about a lifestyle. A verbal lifestyle of praise to God through Christ. And this means that we talk about Jesus with our families. This means we talk about Jesus with our, our parents. Parents, this means we, we talk about Jesus with our kids. We talk to our friends about Jesus. We talk to our coworkers about Jesus. We talk to our neighbors about Jesus. We bring glory to God by using our lips to talk about Him. And just because you type it, by the way, doesn't mean it's not from your lips. There's this, this misunderstanding today that some people have developed that if I type it, it's not really my words. There's a disconnect there. And I want to be clear, even if you type it, it is from your lips because it is from your heart. So that means that what we post on social media even should declare the greatness of God. I heard someone say recently to consider this question before you post on social media. Who does this post glorify? If the answer isn't Jesus, then we probably should pause and at least consider our motives. Now, I'm, I'm not saying don't post pictures of your kids. I'm not saying don't post m pictures of your fun moments in life. And, and I'm not saying don't post your thoughts. But I do think that we as a culture and believers in that culture have a responsibility to slow down and check our motives before we post. And ask ourselves the question, who does this post glorify? So, the first type of sacrifice that we ought to be offering is in praise to God via our, our lips. The things that we say in glorifying Him. Um, the second one, if you look at verse number uh, 16, he says, Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. So the second one is to do good and share what you have. With who? With others. In other words, we are to love like Jesus did by putting others before ourselves. Right? That's what Jesus taught us love was. When he died on the cross, he showed us, you want to know what love is? Love is putting someone else's interest before ours. How did Jesus show us that? When he died, he gave up his life. He put his interest to the side. In fact, even before that, he gave up heaven to become incarnate as a human being. He humbled himself. And then he died on the cross in our place so that we could have life, so that we could have relationship with God. And so, this is the kind of sacrifice we are called to then do for others. And I want to explain uh, by way of example. So, um, we go to winter camp each year. And it is so fun. It is amazing. It's one of my favorite trips we do. Um, but it's a tough one for our leaders, our volunteers. And so teens, if you have a volunteer ever come with us to winter camp, like thank them, okay? They deserve it. Because 
most of the time we leave on Thursday night, so they have to take off work Friday, and then it's like you're up early and you're up late every day for three days straight, and then you really only kind of get Sunday afternoon, and then you're back to work on Monday. So it's, it's an intense trip, and, and this year John Helmbrecht came with us, and I love John. Hey, John. Um, and John, besides doing all of that that I just described, he had an extra sacrifice, okay? Um, you see, there is no smell on this earth like the smell of 14 middle school boys in a cabin for a weekend. Who have wet shoes? Okay? This is, uh, this is a stench beyond all stenches. And John endured that smell all weekend. Not only that, but he led devos in that smell and that stench, putting those middle school boys before himself. Now, middle school boys, you know I love you. Okay? But you also know how horrible that smelled. Okay? So don't give me, don't give me flack about that. Okay? That was rough. What's my point? We offer spiritual sacrifices by putting others before ourselves, by choosing to love others, by considering their interests more important than our own. So to sum it up, we are a royal priesthood today, and our high priest is Jesus, and our responsibility is to offer spiritual sacrifices by loving him and glorifying him with everything we say, whether typed or spoken by our mouth, and and also then loving our neighbor as well. So let's go back to the psalm and and sort of pick up where we left off. So the first two verses of Psalm 134 are the people blessing, or not blessing, but but spurring on the priests. Go and and worship God through the night. And and we talked about how your leaders need that same encouragement, but, but every Christian has that same calling. We need to live this way. And, and why? Because, and here's, here's my first point, right? Worship is an all-encompassing lifestyle. Worship is an all-encompassing lifestyle. It is not something we do on Sunday mornings alone. It's not even something we do when we're together as a church alone. It is something that happens with our entire lives. We are supposed to live lives of worship to our God. And now, in verse 3, that tone shifts, and we start to see it change a little bit. As I mentioned before, verse 3 is a benediction. And instead of the people calling the leaders to worship through the night, now the priests give the people a blessing in return, which was part of their job. If you go to Numbers chapter 6, you can see a a place where the priests give a blessing like this. Okay, we're not going to go there now, but you can do that later. Let me read uh, Psalm 134, verse 3. May the Lord bless you from Zion, He who made heaven and earth. So there's two aspects of the blessing that we need to notice, okay? The author put them there and, and God inspired those words, but we, we, we need to see this, okay? First, uh, let's start with the second one, okay? God is our creator. In this blessing, there is a reminder that God is our creator. He made the heavens and earth. The only, you know, only a mighty and powerful being would be able to do what God has done in creating everything. So, so, in a sense, this blessing for the people would have been a reminder of his power, but it's more than that. It's more than just a reminder of power. It's a reminder of his position as creator. You see, if you declare that God is creator, you're declaring something about yourself. You're declaring that you are not. When you embrace the idea that God is your creator, you are saying about yourself that you are not creator. And this has been our biggest struggle since the beginning of the human race, all the way back in Genesis. What did God imply in His commands to Adam? He commanded Adam, you know, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, don't eat from that tree. 
implied in those commands is an expectation that Adam would acknowledge that God is the creator and as the creator he knows best and that Adam would trust him. And we know very quickly Adam shows he doesn't want to. He wants to be God. He wants to make the shots. He wants to to call the shots. And and parents, we can relate to this so clearly, right? Like like as a dad now, I get this in a very different way than I ever have. So my son has been learning to ride a bike, and, and he's an expert now. Um, we like to play this game where I'm a shark and I chase him on his bike, okay? That's not the point, though. Um, we do these rides pretty much every night. Some nights we miss it, but most nights we do little bike rides around our neighborhood. And he is working on braking right now. And if you know little kids' bikes, okay, they have that stupid back brake thing where it's like to go to brake, you just backpedal. And like for a three-year-old who's just learning how to pedal like that's really hard to grasp that you just pedal the other way and it stops you I I think that they thought it'd be a good idea but watching my son learn I I have quickly learned that it was hard to learn that and I think that bike manufacturers should probably just put handlebar brakes on the but whatever I'm not here for beef with my with bike manufacturers but point is this we're going on like one of our first bike rides and our neighborhood has this big hill that kind of goes down from our house and we're going down this hill and I see the hill coming, and I'm a good dad, so, or at least I think I am. And so I, I say to my son, like, hey, you need to learn how to brake correctly if you're going to go down this hill because you're going to get hurt if you don't. And if you know my son, he's about as stubborn as they come, and he, he wouldn't. He wouldn't stop. He wouldn't let me teach him how to brake. He just wanted to go. And so as a good dad, I let him go. Now, before you, like, call child services, I went with him. I stayed right by his side, and he's fine. He's alive and well at home, okay? But listen, the point is, he went, and he bombed this hill. He ran into the curb. He fell off, and he got some boo-boos, and he cried, okay? It happened. The point is this. I called on my son to trust him, or to trust me, and he wouldn't. But the funny thing is, like, as adults, we expect that from our kids, but then we forget that that's the mindset that we ought to have toward God. That we ought to trust him and acknowledge that he is creator and we are not. That he is God and that we are not. That we are the creature. He knows what he's doing. It kind of helps us understand a little bit why certain portions of the scientific community work so hard to disprove that God created everything. Yes, because if you take God out of creation, you no longer have an authority that you're responsible to answer to. And if there's no God that is creator, then there's no God and then you can be God. So the psalmist reminds the people in his blessing, your God is the creator of heaven and earth. Remember that. Remember his power, but remember his position. And that is a humbling reminder. The second thing you need to notice is that this blessing is going to come from Zion. Now, that's not an accident. That wasn't random. He's like, hmm, let me just pick a place. Spin a globe, boom, Zion, right? You ever play that game when you're a kid? You spin the boom. Where am I going to go on vacation this year? Oh, Uruguay. Oh, I'm going to go to Uruguay this year. I've never been to Uruguay, okay? Um, And and whoever tricked me into believing that spinning a globe and touching would give me Uruguay, I'm I'm mad at you, okay? Um, So the second thing is Zion. Now, this is, this is important, right? We've talked about it. We heard Brian and Joe talk about Zion. Represents, it's the mountain, represents Jerusalem, and, 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 and there's a lot there. Remember, so in this psalm, he just pointed us to God's power and his position as creator, and when we dwell on that alone, we can lose sight of God coming near to us and being loving and being merciful to us. And so we have to remember both, and that's what the psalmist does by pointing to Zion because it was in Zion that God dwelt amongst his people. See, we don't have an apathetic dictator for a God who doesn't care about us, who lives up in his palace and forgets about us and says, I'll be there when I need something from you. 
okay? He doesn't need anything from us to begin with. But he doesn't just stay away. He is a God who has come near. And the story of the Bible shows that. In Genesis, he designed the garden as a place to dwell amongst Adam and Eve, his image bearers. And after their sin, he has to cast them out. But his plan to dwell with them doesn't end there because then generations later, he has the Israelites build a tabernacle where he can come and begin this process of once again dwelling amongst his people. And then eventually that turns into a temple. Well, it doesn't transform into a temple. They build a temple. But you know what I'm saying? There ends up being a temple in where? Zion, in Jerusalem, where God dwells amongst his people. And then you get to the New Testament. And in John chapter 1, verse 4, it said the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. God Himself dwelt in human form as the man Jesus Christ among us. God's desire is to be among us. It's not an accident that it was in Jerusalem, in Zion, where Jesus, the Son of God, died on the cross to bring us into relationship to, with the living God and to offer us forgiveness for our sins. It was also in Jerusalem, remember this, in Acts chapter 2, that the Holy Spirit indwells the apostles and, and, and dwelling takes a completely new form. Uh, God Himself by His Spirit dwells in us as believers and we see that in Jerusalem in Acts chapter 2. But not even that, He then commands, or, or, and then, then he, remember Jesus in Matthew 28, He commanded the disciples, go and make disciples of every nation. So then indwelt by that Spirit, the apostles and, and, and then the, the, the disciples that they make go and spread out through the whole world. And, and today, it's, you can't find a continent where there isn't a church where God's indwelling presence isn't living amongst men by His Spirit in us. And we see God working toward this great plan to dwell with us again. And then when you get to the end of the Bible in Revelation 20-22, through 22, if you look at those chapters, we see this ultimate fulfillment of God creating a new heaven and a new earth where He dwells among us. And we dwell with Him in this new city, this new Jerusalem, this, this massive Jerusalem that's like, 1,400 miles by 1,400 miles by 1,400 miles. It's a huge city of gold, which reminds us of Eden, with onyx that reminds us of Eden. And so we can see that God is working this plan in history to restore us and to restore the world so that we might dwell with Him and that He might dwell with us. And in this blessing, the priests point to that. You see, our Creator desires to dwell with us. And that is humbling. In fact, he's used human history, good and evil, to accomplish his plan of dwelling with us. So we've seen in this psalm, we get two big reminders. First of all, worship is an all-encompassing lifestyle. We must continue that worship in the night, in the day, on Sunday, every day. There are no vacations from worshiping our God. Second, why should we do that? Because our Creator desires to dwell with us. And that should lead us to worship Him all the more fervently. These are perfect reminders for the Israelites, Israelites uh, that during that festival week, but we need them today just as much as they needed them then. And so with that, let's pray. Father, we love you and we are grateful for this reminder that you desire to be worshipped on Sunday morning and Sunday evening, throughout the week, every day, day and night, Lord. But we admit we fall short. 
We admit there are moments when our lives do not glorify you and our lives fail to offer spiritual sacrifices that bless you. And so we ask that in your son, you would forgive us. But also in your son, Lord, would you empower us by your spirit to live lives that are acceptable, that are worthy of our title as your children. Father, help us to worship you in the night. Help us to worship you in the day. We need your help. And Lord, we want to. We want to worship you because we know that you are a God who wants to dwell with us. You haven't given up on us. You, you love us. And Lord, we long for the day when your kingdom comes, not just in the rain through Jesus, which we are experiencing now, but in its realm, in its fullness. We long for that day, Lord, where we will be with you, where you will be our God, and we will be your people. We ask that that day would come soon. And in the meantime, Lord, help us to live lives that are worthy of you, that bring you praise and worship you by our spiritual sacrifices. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.